Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Gatekeepers coming to me and going, Look at our shiny gates. Would you like to come through our gates? And I'm like, no, no, it's fine. We've just got around the back. And they're like, but they're really good gates. Come in around our gates. I'm like, got our own gates, so it's good. good. So it's, to be honest, it's not really gates. It's just more a big open back. And they're like, but the gates, but the gates. You're listening to Feminists Don't Wear Pink, the podcast, based on the book, Feminists Don't Wear Pink and Other Lies, a collection of writing by 52 women on what feminism means to them. I'm Scarlett Curtis. I'm a writer, activist, journalist, and very, very proud feminist. I'm also the curator of this book and the presenter of the podcast. During this series, I'm going to be talking to a few of the amazing contributors who've written our book to find out how they found their feminism and some of the lies that they've been told about what it means to be a woman. Today, I am joined by writer, activist, and founder of Galden magazine, Liv Little. Comedian, writer, and host of the groundbreaking Guilty Feminist podcast, Deborah Francis White. Um, <laughs> and activist and co founder of the Pink Protest, Grace Campbell. Um, I'm kind of hoping that there's someone here who thought they were going to see a star is born and then ended up at a feminist panel. <laughs> if you are, sorry. <laughs> um, okay, I'm going to stop talking now and ask our panellists some questions. And we're going to be doing some readings throughout the night as well from their amazing pieces. Um, but to begin, this whole book is about the lies that we've been told as a society about what it means to be a feminist and also what it means to be a man and a woman. Um, what is one lie that you've been told about what it means to be a woman or a feminist? Um, I was told quite recently, actually, this was by another woman. I was quite surprised. Um, but I was, I was at an event, and there was an older um, black woman present, um, and I was introduced to her by a like, mutual friend. And I was talking a bit about the work that I did and like what my kind of overall goals and mission statement was. Um, and she basically told me <laughs> to go into these spaces. I've just started working at the BBC and said that I should make sure that I smile a lot and also don't cause a fuss. <laughs> you know, she was like, smile, because I think sometimes people can get um, too radical and, you know, you just got to go and be kind of, I don't know, gentle, which is not necessarily my approach. That was a lie, I think I was told recently. So crazy. Imagine someone saying that to a man, like, just smile just a smile lot and be, and be gentle. <laughs> um, that's crazy. Deborah, what about you? Uh, I feel I was told a lie just before I came on stage. Not by any of these guys, <laughs> just to be clear. Sorry. Did you think <laughs> you were seeing a star is born? Scarlet Curtis. I tell you, no, no, that's not what happened. Just before I came here, <laughs> I'm meant to be on the Adrian Child show tomorrow morning on Radio 5 Live to talk about my book, the Guilty Feminist book. And uh, uh, so it's a thing where you just sort of chat about the news. And the researcher who called me went, um, so uh, we're going to be talking about Brett Kavanaugh and Trump. Uh, and Dr. Ford, and just for balance, just for balance, 
just for balance, because we need balance. And this is the lie. We need balance. We're having Will Franken on, who's an American comedian. He's a provocateur, basically. Um, but what Will feels, what Will feels, for balance, for balance, <laughs> what Will feels and will express on the BBC tomorrow morning over people's coffee as they're driving to work, uh, is that Dr. Ford is just making all of this up as a political point scoring. And this is just to get at Trump and just to get at Kavanaugh. So we need, and we need balance with the Me Too movement. We need balance. And that is the lie. And he said, what do you think about that? And I said, well, what I think is that... <laughs> that Dr. Ford is, uh, is, is, is doing a civil duty by standing up and saying, this man is not a good character. And in doing it, she knows that she is redefining her own place in the world forever. That's what I think. And if you want balance, you don't need Will Franken. You have 10,000 years of history of women being raped and abused routinely. You do not need balance where it comes to somebody holding someone else's, else down. You do not, and, and inserting a part of, or trying to insert a part of their body illegally into the others. You have balance. The, bal the balance is the power structures of the world. The, the balance is the history of the world. And this little movement, this Me Too movement, is like a mouse on a seesaw with an elephant. And there's like hundreds of little mice running up to this end of the seesaw, trying to, trying to pull it down to earth. That's your balance. And in 10 years' time, when the world is worse, you will look back at your part in this, in putting that man on the radio, and you will feel responsible. And he went, well, I'll go and talk to my producer about it. <laughs> it's insane. It's a bit like if every time someone went on this morning and Holly hugged them, Philip then had to punch them in the face. <laughs> Like, it just makes no balance. balance. We don't need balance if the other side is evil. It That's makes no line. sense. What about you, Grace? Quietly. Yeah. <laughs> um, a lie. Um, okay, I was told that women have to compete with each other because there is only a place for one person like you. Wherever you're getting, there's only a place for one of you. And that was a lie. And in the last few years, I have realized that. And actually, do you know who helped me realize that? It's this girl called Scarlett Curtis. Because Scarlett Curtis is the epitome of, you have supporting women in your DNA. Like, it's like something that you were just born to do and you do so naturally. And so you really taught me how amazing it can be and how much we can all bring each other up. So that, I have you to thank for. That's so ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, though. Uh, for balance, I'd like to say me. Scarlett's awful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for balance. She's, she's really not. She is as delightful um, as she seems. That's said. ridiculous, but thank you. And I feel very honoured to have you all here. Um, OK, when did you all realise you were a feminist? Um, I'll just go for that, because yeah. there was a bit of silence. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, when I was really young, I had two older brothers, and um, I, I always found it baffling that, that at home I could do everything that they could do, and then I would go to school, and I couldn't do everything they could do. Like, I couldn't just take off my top and have my nipples out all the time. Like, I, I didn't want to cover up my, my nipples till I, till I got boobs, really, but I was sort of told that I had to. So I always used to think that there was this, like, thing that made me... Uh, 
not treated as, as well as my brothers. And I think that I've always been conscious of that. And I think it's funny because I think for you, we're very similar in some ways and very different. But I think for you, it turned into anger and realizing feminism. And for me, it definitely turned into like self-hatred. So if people treated you differently as a woman, I think I thought there was just something wrong with me. And that was why it was happening. And I think those are two quite common reactions that a lot of young girls have, is either you get really angry or you get really angry at yourself. What about you, Deborah? Um, well, my parents became Jehovah's Witnesses when I was 14. Um, I think because they assumed adolescence was an ideal time to join a mind-controlling cult. <laughs> and it, it turns out it is. It is. Your brain's very plastic. And um, it's a small, it's an ideal time to get into Ketamine or Jesus. And um, so I was in a small-scale patriarchy because all the big decisions were made by 12 old men in Brooklyn and all the, the small decisions day-to-day -day were made by the elders in your congregation. And I used to feel very strongly when I read the Bible that there was a, a lot of violence towards women and unfairness towards women. Mm -hmm. And the one way, I was very devout and dowdy, um, but the one way in which I was a rebellious Jehovah's Witness, like I wasn't like doing any of the naughty things that some of the teenagers were doing, but I used to have this very strong feminist streak and I would occasionally say, you're not allowed to say anything that's not from the rule book, mm -hmm. but occasionally I'd say, you know, I think in the new system, when the paradise comes, men and women are going to be equal and men aren't going to be our heads anymore because that was Jehovah's original idea mm. and then it all went wrong in the Garden of Eden and then people would go, you can't say that. Mm. Um, and so Smack. I was just desperate to be a feminist. So when I left, it was the first thing I did was to just sort of start to exercise some feminist muscle. A, a cult that is a good cult. Feminism? Yeah, I yeah exactly. One, one, one cult to another, but yeah. uh, it, it's, it's, it, there's more plurality of thought. <laughs> yeah, it's not actually a cult, I promise. Um, Liv, your piece in the book is kind of about how you found a certain t part of your feminism. Do you want to read that now? Oh, my God. Oh, okay. <laughs> I decided to write about my vulva for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when I first got the call, it was like, would you like to write a piece about feminism and something which looked at intersectionality? Because that's a, a lot of the work that I do is yeah. kind of centered yeah. around that. And I talk about that a lot. And for some reason, I'm doing this thing this year where I'm trying to write about things that really scare me. So I thought, okay, <laughs> perfect time. Okay, cool. So let's go. Um, I hadn't looked at my vulva until I was 14, and this was purely because me and a friend had planned to lose our virginities to each other. Very practical <laughs> thing to do. <laughs> um, I remember calling up one of my best friends at the time and telling her what was about to happen. He was well on his way over, and my best friend advised me to shave everything immediately. And this was the first time that I'd seen her in all her glory. As we were about to have sex, I remember him commenting on me having something hanging down there. I don't think it was meant as an insult, but I suppose what he had seen was a neat, perfect version of what we were exposed to through online pornography. And I'm well aware that this was the source of sex education for most of my male friends at the time. I can't say that I thought much about this in the first instant. I had bigger things to deal with at that moment, like the fact that I had no idea what was going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> After what I can only describe as an anticlimactic encounter, <laughs> <laughs> I can recall replaying the comment that he had made about my vulva over and over again. So I hopped online wanting to see what most women's vulvas look like, but I certainly didn't want to ask anyone about it. 
The internet, as we know, can be a scary place filled with opportunities for self-diagnosis, and the vulvas I saw online all emanated what I knew were referred to in kidulthood as a designer vagina. <laughs> These were vulvas which were perfectly symmetrical, but this wasn't mine. The guy that I had lost my virginity to had been the first, but he wasn't the last to offer his unsolicited opinion as to what my vulva looked like. I can recall two other instances. One was very public through a BlackBerry Messenger broadcast, which a friend had to decode for me from a boy who I'm pretty sure would have married himself given half the chance. <laughs> and the other was a lighthearted comment made by an ex-partner. The second comment, which wasn't made until several years after the first, was enough to tip me over the edge. For years, I became increasingly paranoid about my body. I'd insist on having sex with the lights off. And if anybody attempted to go down on me, I'd absolutely freeze. This impacted my ability to develop healthy sexual relationships, and I began to form an unhealthy obsession with what I ought to look like. Age 14, 15, 16, 17, and even 18, I was yet to find intersectional feminism and body positivity. And during those formative years, I spent time obsessing on internet forums, googling information about labiaplasties, and staring at my vulva and imagining what she would look like in the perfect world. There were constant reminders for me that my body did not live up to expectations, and therefore I harbored a severe amount of shame around what I looked like. Whether it was comments from boys or girls talking about vulvas that protruded, referring to them as hanging ham, or watching a Channel 4 documentary about a woman going through surgery to get a designer vagina, and having a relative squeal when they saw what her vulva looked like in its current state, were all reminders that, as a woman, I was supposed to transform into a superhuman, pornographically pruned version of myself, and these images were never ending. This was something that I carried with me well into my early 20s. I recall stumbling across the Great Wall of Vaginas by Jamie McCartney, which led me down a slightly different path of thought. I was beginning to witness a real celebration of the multitude of forms that vulvas could take, all of which were happy and healthy. It wasn't as though after this, my attitude immediately changed. I did, however, begin to feel as though with my increasing knowledge of feminism, that my discomfort with my body was somehow at odds with how I was supposed to be as a feminist. How could I encourage other women to flip the discourse around imperfections when I was still battling with my own insecurities? And that piece is called Feminism, My Vulva and Me, which I think might be my favorite title in the whole book. <laughs> um, this, I mean, there's so many things in that, and it's so fascinating, but I think something you really touch on is the kind of way that the internet objectifies women and doesn't help what we all spend our lives fighting for. But I also kind of really strongly believe that the internet can be an incredible place for feminism and activism and expression. How do you all interact your feminism with the internet and social media? I mean, I think when I was going through that kind of like transitionary period of like, oh my God, like I'm not, I don't look how I'm supposed to look. Mm -hmm. I don't think there was this kind of side to Instagram, which we have now. Obviously we have the side which is like promoting a certain type of body mm. consistently, but they're not the people that I follow. And the people that I do follow are people who are really positive, who come in different shapes, sizes, gender identities, um, and are, yeah, strong, I don't know, supporters and, and, and advocates of feminism and everything surrounding that. So I think the internet can be a, an incredibly powerful tool. But I do also think that because, yeah, we grew up with the internet, we had Facebook and things, but it's slightly different now to this, yeah. to this generation where they literally grow up on Instagram. And I feel like I'm able to separate. Um, I've been reading this, this book, um, Why Social Media is Ruining Your Life, yeah. the new book, yeah. Um, and I don't know how much those younger girls are able to separate like what is real on 
on Instagram versus what is not real. Yeah, I think it's really fascinating. Like the we through Pink Protest, we work with a lot of like teenage activists, and a few of them are in the book. And some, I mean, I think it does. It is terrifying often what's happening, but also a lot of them know themselves and their beliefs because of the internet in a way that I never did at that age and didn't know anyone that did. And they are so informed and sure of themselves. And I think I kind of try to stay quite positive. positive. Yeah. yeah. I don't think we wouldn't have the Me Too movement without the internet. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, I wouldn't have an audience at all because before um, the internet, or before certainly the internet was what it is now, when I was trying to get my work seen, there were constant gatekeepers. And then through podcasting, I was able to find a really big audience. But if I, that's two and a half years ago. If I, two and a half years ago, I'd gone to a television network or a radio station and said, I want to do a show with feminist in the title, they would have said no. I mean. But now we've had yeah. 50 million downloads in two yeah. and a half years. They're really much more interested. <laughs> um, I, what I'm finding now is. Yeah, that deserves a round of applause. Is, gatekeepers coming to me and going, look at our shiny gates. Would you like to come through our gates? And I'm like, no, no, it's fine. Just got around the back. And they're like, but they're really good gates. Come in around our gates. I'm like, got our own gates, so it's good. So it's, to be honest, it's not really gates. It's just more a big open back. That's and they're like, gates, but the gates. Like, don't need the gates anymore. So, you know, it's, it's, it, it puts us in a very different... I feel like the artists have taken control of the means of production. And for that, I will always be truly grateful. And for balance, we have everything else on the internet. But I also think um, that we'll come to terms with it. I think it's just still very new. So, yeah. like, no one has quite worked out what the kind of rules of engagement are for all of this. But I think we really will get there. Like, Scarlett and I are always very optimistic about this because I see young people actually intelligently saying, no, I don't want to use Instagram because I can feel the way that it's affecting me. You know, we've yeah. got to give them more credit. They're, they're learning, they're failing, and then they'll sort of yeah. work out the ways that they want to engage in it. It's the same as we all have. It's very new and addictive. Um, Deborah, what you just said ties very nicely to your piece in the book. Do you want to read a bit from it? Do you know? I'd love to. <laughs> Do you know? No. <laughs> um, so this piece, um, I'm going to come in halfway, so just to set it up. Um, the head of comedy at the BBC, I feel like I'm really... <laughs> coming in there, but no. Gatekeepers, I, you're going for all the gatekeepers. I, no, he said, some, he said something not unuseful. He was asked off the cuff at a television conference, uh, would you commission Monty Python now? And if you're very young, Monty Python were a sketch group. Um, and, uh, and he said, well, casually off the cuff, he said, well, we probably wouldn't commission a sketch group now of six posh white Oxbridge blokes. And that's just because there's more routes to market. Footlights isn't exclusively male working. Men's clubs aren't the only place you can do stand-up. Um, but this obviously was taken uh, immediately onto the internet uh, for some hysteria. And Terry Gilliam, one of the Pythons, uh, responded, um, it makes me cry, it made me cry hearing that. The idea that no longer six white Oxbridge men can make a comedy show. Now we need, <laughs> now we need one of this, one of that, everybody represented. This is so bullshit. <laughs> I no longer want to be a white male. I don't want to be blamed for everything wrong in the world. I tell the world now I'm a black lesbian. <laughs> so this piece is a response to that. And I talk about, um, I talk about for balance, that there still are some, a few <laughs> white men on the television. Um, uh, but, um, 
but admit that other groups are definitely becoming more visible. Um, and so that's where I'll, I'll pick it up about halfway through. It is certainly not easier to be a black lesbian. As comedian Lolly Adifope quipped on Twitter, name your top five black lesbians working today. <laughs> However, it is possible that a black lesbian's comedy voice might have a route to market now. When the Pythons got their first commission, it was simply inconceivable that a black woman, let alone an out gay black woman, could be seen or heard on a national network. I love the Pythons, and like most people in British comedy, can quote swathes of their work. Imagine losing the dead parrot sketch, or the cheese shop. It'd be awful if they just weren't there anymore. Now imagine the sketch shows we did lose, because we never got to hear the genius comic voices of their black lesbian counterparts. That's certainly what happened. There were definitely hilarious comedy minds and exquisite sketch performances among the black female queer community in 1969. There were women who had their friends and families in hysterics, mimics, surrealists, satirists. Most of them correctly assumed that they could never perform their work publicly or develop material that would be showcased on television. They got another job. Others no doubt submitted sketches but were turned down and gave up. Some tried the theater, but as Natasha Bonilane at the British Library explains, during the late 1950s and 1960s, black female playwrights were virtually invisible on the British stage. Their works were not being published or produced. Some of those women are elderly now. Their potential ministry of silly walks, undeveloped and unnurtured, will die with them. Some have taken their holy grail to the grave. We don't know the name of the black lesbian John Cleese, and we never will. But she walked down Carnaby Street in the summer of love, doing funny voices, throwing away witty one-liners, and snapping back her most edgy observations about Harold Wilson and Woodstock. Her friends were doubled over listening to her. Let's call her Clara. She probably worked in an office, typing for the men we remember. Perhaps she worked at the BBC. <laughs> when I was writing this, I was thinking it was better now. <laughs> and every now and again suggested a brilliant punchline which was hoovered up and used without credit. She probably loved always look on the bright side of life and knew all the words. We will never know all the lyrics to her songs, though. It was simply impossible for her to share them. It's not easy now, but with an enormous amount of work, courage, mold-breaking, and luck, it's possible. Today I drink to Clara, Susan, Annie, and Aruna, and their lost collective comedy library of Alexandria, full of sketches and stand-up about their political views, their cultural heritage, their dating life, their window on racism, sexism, and classism, and their attitude to the planet we are spinning on. Let's take a moment to miss their comedy wonders as much as we would miss the spam sketch if it went missing tomorrow. We hope we won't lose any more from this day forward. I love that. And it's also proof that history was not balanced in any way. Hashtag balance. Hashtag balance. <laughs> um, I think something we really tried to focus on when putting the book together was making it about action as well as just kind of theory and talking about feminism. And a lot of the women in the book are incredible feminist activists that, you know, are out there right now. We asked Nimco Ali to be a part of this panel and she's in Somaliland <laughs> trying to end FGM, which is a lot better than this panel. Um, <laughs> but sometimes that can be hard. And I think something, one of the reasons we started the Pink Protest was because 
after the 2016 election, I was living in New York and so many women were coming up to me just saying, what can I do? What can I do? What can I do? I don't feel like I'm doing enough. How do you all feel like you do your feminism in everyday life? I think, um, I don't know, for me, it's probably about bringing other women into projects that I'm doing on the day to day. I feel like my life is kind of, <laughs> that's what I'm doing. Um, whether that's bringing new voices and talent and stuff into places like the BBC, whether that's commissioning new writers through Galdem and providing like a platform for people to explore certain issues or bringing mm. people onto creative projects or, um, yeah, it's in my kind of daily actions. I think that's important. For anyone who doesn't know, do you want to, Talk a bit about what Galdem do. does. Yeah. We've um, got our third issue launched tomorrow. So if I don't stress, that's why. <laughs> um, so Galdem is, um, uh, well, it's kind of like a media company now. It encompasses lots of different things, so events, um, online content, and a print. But it started with the aim to empower the creative voices um, and talents of women of colour, non-binary people of colour, in a way that doesn't happen here. Um, you'll see on the TV, you won't see that many, you know, like you just said, um, black women being funny. That we have, we've got Michaela Cole, but <laughs> that's kind Colin of like... Fope, Desiree yeah, Birch. Yeah. There's, there There's are a, they are there, but they're, but they're not there as much as other people are there. Oh, no, and no. we haven't had that platform, so everything that we're kind of trying to do across arts, politics, film, is all with the aim to just provide a space for those voices to be heard, so, mm. yeah. Uh, and they've just got a job as... Uh, digital executive at the BBC. Very cool. <laughs> so she is a gatekeeper and she's throwing yeah, the She's going to change it. Yeah, yes. it's amazing. For six months that I was there. No, <laughs> big waves Until in those six months. Until this recording comes out and yeah. then you will be gone. <laughs> um, Grace, what about you? Uh, I just, when I meet a man, I just like kick him. <laughs> in the balls. Usually if I meet a man and I'm like misogynist, I just punch them for in the ball. Then Not you even. just say for balance. That's my feminist balance. activism. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's all, really. Um, and I wank every day. <laughs> uh, great, that's what I hoped you'd say. Do you want to read your piece from the book? Scott, it's coming like a routine of ours. I know. Yeah, okay. We're like Morecambe and Wise, but about wanking. Okay. <clears throat> so this piece is called... Okay, so it's, it says the female wank, but female is actually crossed out. So it's really called the wank, but the word female is there because they're making the point that it should just be the wank, but it's called the female wank. And we call it female masturbation, but it should just be masturbation. Uh, and I, I wrote this because um, we do this thing with Pink Protest called uh, hashtag girls wank too. And I kind of realized early in the year that actually our pleasure, I mean, I'm sure lots of people know this, but has been written out of history and women's pleasure, especially in heterosexual sex. Heterosexual sex ends when the man has an orgasm and we were never taught about how important our pleasure is and it's actually life-changing. Um, so this is what I've written. It's called The Wank Crossed Out Female. <laughs> the first time I was turned on, I was eight. Kim Kardashian sex tape. A girl in my class showed it to me after school. My vagina felt like a hot air balloon. I ran home so that I could finish the feeling alone. I'll never forget it. Sex with myself for the first time. A feeling of utter bliss, and then suddenly, I felt ashamed, disturbed, like I deserved to be locked up. But I continued to do it all the time, uh, <coughs> in secret. <laughs> a teddy bear, a pillow, a TV remote. <laughs> it was the biggest source of comfort and the biggest source of loneliness. No one had ever told me girls could touch themselves. 
Meanwhile, boys were being boys, wanking in the toilets at school, wanking alongside their friends to the same porn video, a community of wankers. <laughs> Fathers were joking with their sons about what type of porn they watched, a coming of age. Boys were taught to think that the female orgasm was as simple as unlocking an iPhone. All you need is a light fingerprint and she'll come. <laughs> Sex with boys was a misunderstanding. When it happened, there was no hot air balloon feeling. He thought, put it in there and she'll enjoy it. Every time I so much as sighed, he thought it was an orgasm. <laughs> His pleasure was more important than mine. My pleasure was locked up in the box of secrets and I still thought I was a freak. It wasn't until I was 20 that my friend told me that she did the same. What I would have done to have known that for those past 12 years, all of that anguish wasted on nothing. The next time I had sex, I put my hand down there. I showed him how it was done, whoever he was. The sex I have with myself unlocks new levels of sex I have with other people, like Candy Crush. <laughs> Patriarchy has attempted to write female pleasure out of our culture. Patriarchy wants us to think that our sexual gratification can only be granted to us by a man. But life is too short to be having bad sex, so tell all of your mates, girls wank too. literally my favourite poem. <laughs> um, it's not actually a poem, but then it became a poem. It's got put, I thought it was an essay. <laughs> it's just so beautiful it became a poem. Thank you, love you. Um, Deborah, <laughs> how do you do your feminism? I thought you were going to say, how do you masturbate? I was like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, could you give us all a guide, no, please? <laughs> uh, how do I do my feminism? I think that's a good, strong yeah. question. <laughs> um, well, I think I started the Guilty Feminist podcast to wallow in my own oppression and what I've learnt about more than anything is my privilege and so that show has been very illuminating for me and I've really changed with it and I've grown with it mostly because we've listened to criticism and changed the show and I think that's why our listenership has grown so much because we've we've listened and I, I mean when people first criticized us I was like all right well, it was free I mean, <laughs> make your own podcast if you don't like it. But what made me start to listen was I don't like it when I try and tell men about what it is to be... Uh, I don't like it when I try and tell men what my female experience is mm. and they say it's not important or it's not true or they some, in some way deny it. So when I had listeners writing in with valid um, issues... Um, I, I tried to read emails as if all the issues were valid and then I started to learn and I started to listen and one of the biggest things that I think I've learned through The Guilty Feminist is what happens if you have majority representation because it's really easy to have like one woman on a panel and then she has to describe what it is to be all of womanhood mm. um, and so like recently at The Guilty Feminist we had... Um, uh, three women who were queer and all two of them had a disability and one of them was neurodivergent. So I was the only person who was effectively straight. Um, I mean, I'm not that straight, but, you know, effectively. Mm -hmm. and, the, and I was the only woman who didn't have a, a disability or a neurodivergence. 
And so, and we learned so much. It was so funny. It was hysterically funny um, because Rosie Jones and it's just so hysterically funny. But Ellen, we learned. I learned so much from Kimara and Ellen. And I realized at the end, you know, they always say, oh, well, there's more men called David who are CEOs than female CEOs. And Steve. I, sorry? And Steve. And Steve. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Oh. And John, for sure. No, um, not John, just David and Steve. Just David and Steve. Okay. All right. She's got the details there on a clipboard. Got and uh, <laughs> uh, But I realized we had more queer disabled women called Jones on that panel <laughs> than men. And what I find is that it, it, the, the conversations then become collegiate and it's sort of like, yeah, does that happen to you? Yeah, exactly. When I go clubbing and this happens. Mm. And, but I didn't invite them on to talk about being gay or being disabled. I got them on to talk about identity and they were talking about going clubbing. Mm. And then you learn stuff that you wouldn't learn if you had, if you either had four uh, women who were straight and white and non-disabled and, and neurotypical and cis and and then you have one person on the end who's rep who's meant to be representing somehow diversity so that's that's my recommendation if you have a panel that you're putting together for your work conference or something like that or in any way you're putting together a platform just see what it's like to say this is only going to be women of color and people go, what, oh, what do you mean only women of colour? Well, like, like it's always only white men, like that, only women of colour. And to see what happens, the conversations are different. And just be brave about that. It is odd to have four people in wheelchairs and, and, and a non, mostly non-disabled audience. It is weird. Why is it weird, though? And you will see different conversations happening. I love that. Just checking the time very professionally. Uh, I wanted to read my bit, a bit that I wrote for the book. Um, I ended up writing quite a few bits for the book because a lot of people filed their pieces really late. Um, and we thought that it might just be me and the woman that founded the Black Lives Matter movement, which would have been the weirdest book anyone's ever read. Um, so, but then at the end, everyone sent them in. Um, but this is my last bit in the book. I'm sorry, while you're looking it up, I'll bask by saying I'm sorry. I was one of the ones that got it in really late. And that's why I'm And my... I love the fact that you called it yeah. <laughs> I did it because we were wondering why you called it No, I hadn't. She just... got it in so late that we called her piece the subject of the email she sent And it, it was in. pink protest. Pink protest <laughs> that's their thing. <laughs> it's not meant to be called that. It was meant to be um, called Black Lesbian John Cleese. It is, in fact, called Pink Protest. At least, at least we didn't call it out of office. That would have been funny. <laughs> that would have been quite funny. Um, <laughs> you must have thought it I nicked your title, though. It's like if you sent me something okay, called Guilty is, Feminist. No, this is really lame. I was really I, confused. No, I, was like, I thought you loved us so much. I do. No, I you do. were so inspired <laughs> that all your feminism could be titled Pink Protest. That's true. <laughs> it was an homage. Um, yeah. Uh, okay, this bit is my last bit in the book, and it's called what, Happen what Happens Next. There is no perfect feminism. The phrase itself is an oxymoron. Feminists thrive on imperfections. They turn weakness into strength and vulnerability into power. They take broken systems and find ways to turn the cracks into opportunities, and they take broken girls and find ways to make them feel whole again. I've spent my whole life, as I think so many women have, feeling like what I had to offer wasn't enough to justify my presence. I've spent years feeling not clever enough, not pretty enough, not cool enough, not fun enough, and generally not enough to measure up to what I thought a person should be. I will not spend my life feeling not feminist enough, and neither will you. 
You were born, like we all were, with the power inside you to make the world a better place. Take this book and use it as a weapon. Give it to a friend, give it to an enemy. Rip out your favorite page and pin it to your wall. What you do next is up to you. Whether you start a movement or join Girl Up or simply decide to send a nice text to your mum saying thank you, it's all enough, it's all brilliant, and it's all something. Whatever you take from the book, whatever you do next, it's enough. Woo! Thanks so much for listening to this podcast. If you've enjoyed it, or even if you didn't, we'd love to hear from you. So make sure you subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Feminists Don't Wear Pink and Other Lies, published by Penguin Random House, is available to buy now via the link in the description of this episode. All of the royalties from each book sold go to the amazing UN organisation Girl Up, who is supporting girls across the world. For more information and to join our gang, please follow us on Instagram at at feminists. Thank you so much to Audio Boom for helping us get it out there and to the wonderful Pink Feminists who've joined us as guests. That's I have amazing. an idea. How about either everyone here buy a book and give it to a man, because then we sell double the amount of yeah. books. <laughs> but if you can't, after you finish the book... Give, give it, it to, to a man. man. Because honestly, this book, and I read it again today, it is essential reading, but it also gives feminism the face that it has deserved for a very long time, and it shows how feminism can have loads of different faces, and it doesn't look like one thing, but men will relate to it once but they've read this whole book. also, you can lure them in and be like, hey, do you think Kira Knightley's fit? Yeah. And they'll be like, yeah. And you'll be like, cool. Gemma Arterton, somewhere, bong girl. Yeah, somewhere in this book, there are pictures of them naked. Yeah. And, then, and then give it to them. Find it. And then afterwards, you text them and go, lol, just kidding, it's not pictures of them naked, it's feminist essays they wrote. Yeah. Surprise! Feminists don't wear pink, they just wear nothing. They wear nothing, yeah. That's what the book is, it actually is inside. Um, no, but I yeah. Feel we I we may have missed the turn off. Um. <laughs> Hold up, what was that? Boring, no flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.